Among the many, many advantages of having been born in the 70s and grown up in the 80s, like having the Smurfs in my life and the Dukes of Hazard and real arcades with actual fun games, was the fact that we had real limousines. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say real limousines? I'm not talking about these goofy kind of yellow novelty Hummers that you see driving around sometimes now, or these stretched out SUVs with like a hot tub in the back, like you're living in an actual cartoon. I'm talking about the basic boxy black limo with a hood ornament on the front, gleaming because it's been polished by somebody, and one of those boomerang-shaped antennas mounted in the back. Essentially the same car you'd see Cindy Lauper or Yitzhak Rabin climbing out of on television, and once in a while you'd see one driving around. Its windows completely tinted, a total mystery, and it was exciting. And you'd think, who is that? Who's in there? What celebrity or dignitary has business today in Bay City, Michigan? And, you know, even today, once in a while, I'll see one of those real limos with the the boxy corners made out of metal, not fiberglass. And a few times, I've seen one for sale. There was one just up the road, up Cedar Street, uh, in one of those parking lots for the longest time. And I drove by it every day. And, oh, once a week, I had the urge, just make an offer. It's been there a while, just make an offer, Zach. Even though owning that and driving that car would make me the chauffeur, not the high roller. And even though any time as a child the doors actually opened on a limo, it was a huge disappointment. Right? It was, it was never Burt Reynolds or Lee Iacocca. It was always like a clown car of awkward teenagers in rented tuxedos and puffy-sleeved dresses climbing out and wandering and giggling their way into Elias Brothers. And you're like, oh, well, that was kind of a letdown. And that's kind of similar to the situation we see described in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 7. I have seen bond servants on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, when he says, I have seen, if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that this isn't a rhetorical device. This isn't him just rambling or exaggerating. No, Solomon has seen this. One of the themes of the book is that Solomon has seen just about everything. Nothing is new to him under the sun, and nothing that he's seen is new under the sun. And almost all of it, can be filed under meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So this is one of these things that he has seen with his own eyes, probably in his own administration as king. Now recognize one thing, horses were rare in Judea at the time. So if you saw someone at a distance on a horse, the assumption is this is a very powerful, wealthy, and important person. In fact, even until fairly modern times in the East, to be seen riding on a horse, it was a sign of distinction and wealth. So you'd see someone at a distance and think, oh, that's someone important. Kind of like seeing that limo with the tinted glass and going, oh, in there is someone important. But then when you got there, if it was a servant and there was no royal robes and there was no pomp and there was nothing to it, this is a, a disconnect that Solomon sees here. His buddy, Agur, Uh, writing in Proverbs 30, says something similar. 
Proverbs 30, 21 to 22. Under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes king, a godless fool who gets plenty to eat, a contemptible woman who gets married, and a servant who displaces her mistress. Now, Solomon nor Agur are talking about uh, ordinary people that, that should not, because of their ordinariness, rise above the station that they were born into and do great things. I mean, that idea, rising above and doing great things, is, describes like half the stories in the Old Testament. No, rather he's describing the all-too-common situation in the world in which men of no character and little talent become celebrated and lifted up and live large, well, the hardest working, most gifted people, people of integrity, struggle and remain obscure. The examples are manifold. Think of the book of Esther. Haman is in the court. Mordecai is stuck out at the gate. Or think of Elijah running for his life, running, running on foot. I mean, granted, he was faster than a chariot, which is one of my favorite little details from the Old Testament, but running away, fleeing for his life, while Jezebel and Ahab, who have just been defeated and humiliated, still sit in their palace and scheme. Or perhaps the most uh, telling of all these examples would be David fleeing on foot from his own son Absalom, who is in the midst of a a coup d'etat, Well, Absalom goes and sits on the throne. We read in 2 Samuel 15, But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too, and were weeping as they went up. The rabbis saw this as a prophecy of the captivity of Israel. When they were all Israel on foot like servants, and the Gentiles rode on horses. It seems that in this world, the loudest people, the most prideful people, the people with the most empty swagger are most celebrated and often live the most lavish lives, while the truly great often spend their lives in absolute obscurity. And it must be true everywhere if it is even true in the church. And certainly it is, at least in the church, visible, if not in the church, invisible. The true believers who are saved Uh, Let's flip to that 2 Corinthians passage uh, that Jonathan read for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is in the midst, we looked at this a few years ago, you may remember, you may may not. Uh, It's in the midst of Paul addressing an issue with the super apostles. The super apostles, which is just such a great, great little barb. Uh, This is a very sarcastic uh, section of the book, so I am drawn to it naturally. The super apostles are people who are, are kind of handsome, beautiful, and successful people who are there teaching, and as they teach, they try to usurp Paul's position as apostle, and they degrade him in the eyes and the ears of the people. It was quite a controversy, and it is a classic example of the servants being on horseback while the king is on foot. Paul wouldn't call himself the king, but I would, the king of missionaries, the king of the apostles. Yes, he was the chief of sinners, but who doesn't aspire to emulate Paul as Paul emulates Christ. He should be the one honored, and yet he's mocked and scorned for not being handsome enough, it was true, for not being eloquent enough in person, apparently also true, for not being successful enough, the guy spent most of his life in a cell, at least the last few years, 
Uh, and so these false teachers, whose words amount to absolutely nothing, drag him down into the dust. Well, they are seated on horses. There are many of these super apostles today that can make you feel good, and people will listen to them, kind of scratch that religious itch, get that, fill that niche in their life without having to de- deny themselves, count the cost, take up the cross, do anything that would be uncomfortable. In fact, it's just a message that makes you feel wonderful. I saw an article yesterday about a televangelist who has been hacked. And it said, this guy worth $750 million is the most wealthy pastor alive. And I thought, most wealthy? Sure. Pastor? No. You know who's a pastor? Ed Pikey is a pastor. He was my pastor for 10 years in Grand Rapids. He taught me so much about following Jesus. Now, I was in Bible college. I was in seminary when he was my pastor. I don't think he taught me a ton that I wasn't learning already about the content of the Bible, but he sure taught me what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully. You ever heard of Ed Pikey? Well, yeah, you have, because I talk about him fairly frequently, illustratively in my sermons, but if you didn't go to this church, you would never know. And a few years after he passes away, he probably won't be talked about much at all by anyone. At least after I'm gone, who will be left to talk about him? Because I was probably one of the youngest people to ever be under his ministry. Ed Pedley, that was a pastor. When I was called to ministry, I told him, I think I might, maybe should be a pastor. And he said, well, let's talk about this. And he helped me see this call was something from God. Ever heard of Ed Pedley? Probably not, even though he's part of our own small denomination and spent his whole ministry here in our small region. That's obscurity. Ed Owens, that's a pastor, 30 years, any Ed, really, right? Ed, (laughs) 30-some years at Olivet Baptist Church. People talk about him, people know him, but even go to Ohio and ask, hey, you guys ever heard of those sermons by Ed Owens? No, nobody has. That's obscurity. Dan Metzger, that's a pastor. He's my pastor from the day I was born until I was about my son's age, baptized me, taught me as a young child that we need to be on the lookout for the enemy and we need to keep our eyes fixed on the cross. Was a wonderful pastor to my parents, to my sister, to many people. And he never got rich and he never got famous. But you know what? His son Adam is pastor of Mason Community Church just down the road here. And I think he would treasure that far more than any of the rest of that stuff. But when we we think about these things, it can drive you a little nuts why, why do we lift up those with the emptiest, slickest, outer veneer rather than those who are the most faithful, whether it's in the world or even in the church visible? And I think what we need to do is stop thinking about it and remember that the first will be last and the last will be first. And when Jesus says that in the future tense, it's kind of a reminder this isn't done yet. This is, this is, this is not complete, but we are to live this way. Someday, the first will be made last, and and the king that's walking in the dust will be placed on the horse, and the servant who doesn't belong there will be displaced. Sometimes this happens during this lifetime. For example, Haman finds himself on foot in the dust, leading a horse, the finest horse in the kingdom, with Mordecai riding along there, and then Haman finds himself hanging from his own gallows, dead. Happy ending to that one. David's 
fleeing from his son Absalom. It's not a happy ending. He's weeping because his son has died, but order is restored and the proper king is placed back on the throne. But usually these things aren't resolved in this life. That's the Christian hope, that we have hope beyond this life. And so we have to not obsess over them. And for a long time, but especially in 2020, there have been a lot of indicators to a lot of people that it just feels like things are upside down in the world. And and these are things that are way outside of our control. And sometimes we need to just let them go. Now, of course, where there is injustice, we can and should try to remedy that. But in Ecclesiastes 10, Solomon reminds us that it ultimately won't be political power or human power or wealth that will bring these things about. Even wisdom is nothing without the power of God in it, working through it. But what is within our sphere as believers, as people, let me check, obscurity, well, Hudgen played Carnegie Hall, but the rest of us are pretty obscure. (laughs) But what is within our sphere is that we can make sure the right kings are elevated and the right servants denigrated in our own hearts and minds and spirits. Spurgeon said this, Let us not fall into the error of letting our passions and carnal appetites ride in triumph while our nobler powers walk in the dust. Grace must reign as a prince and make the members of the body instruments of righteousness. The Holy Spirit loves order. And he therefore sets our powers and faculties in due rank and place, giving the highest room to those spiritual faculties which link us with the great king. Let us not disturb the divine arrangement, but ask for grace that we may keep under our body and bring it into subjection. We were not newly created to allow our passions to rule over us, but that we, as kings may reign in Christ Jesus over the triple kingdom of spirit, soul, and body to the glory of God the Father. In a later sermon at New Park Tabernacle, Spurgeon said something similar. Let us not fall into the error of letting our carnal passions ride in a sweet limo while our nobler powers walk or ride in a 73 Pinto. It's hard to to tell sometimes with Spurgeon quotes which ones are original and which ones were attributed to him later, but you get the point. In the world, things are backwards so often. Yes, we can say, I'll do my little part and trust that God will use it. At the same time, we have to remember that I am responsible to keep things in order in here and in here. And if you're listening on the phone, I was pointing at my head and at my breast. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 10 here a minute, this super apostles passage here. What is it that Paul wants to say? What is it that he wants these people who have been led astray by slick words to understand? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That sounds an awful lot like something we're going to bump into in Ephesians in a short time, probably in the next year. Ephesians 6, right? The armor of God, 
the weapons of our warfare, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, all these things. I'm actually going to take several weeks and make that a series within a series, and I'm super, super excited about it. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. But the idea here, he says, he says you, you have to be at work in here, in here, making sure that if you see someone riding on the horse and leading the direction of your thoughts and being elevated and lifted up that has no place there, you cast them down. In fact, that's the next verse. That's the language. We destroy imaginations and cast them down and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Tearing down strongholds. That's military language. To attack a city and you'd have to tear down the walls to some degree or somehow subvert them. And if there was a tower, a stronghold, you would have to deal with it and break it down. And sometimes there was a symbolic element to that, not just a military advantage. We think about the idols that grow in our hearts and how we must always be toppling them. Remember the, the picture of all the people pulling down the statue of Saddam Hussein? That ought to be what it looks like in our hearts every time we find ourselves going down the wrong path, elevating the wrong things, serving the wrong gods. We're coming up on Advent, so I've been listening to the Messiah, which is kind of my favorite thing to do in my study during all of the Christmas season. And the very beginning of it we get, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. This is a prophecy from Isaiah 40. Reminds us what happened when Christ came. And we have the ultimate example of a little baby in a manger, a food trough. A man walking around in the dust, nowhere to lay his head, who's the king of kings. Meanwhile, Herod sits on a throne? What an absurd, backward situation. And yet Jesus came and did that for us. And he said, follow me, live like me, be willing to be debased in order to bring inside yourselves the kind of order that God creates, in which our carnal natures take the back seat, in which we no longer are ruled by our passions, but rather by the Spirit, tearing down strongholds and every imagination that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. And then this beautiful phrase, every thought captive to obey Christ. There is a battle for your mind and a battle in your mind for your thoughts, what you will dwell on. And in the Greek, the word mind is a, is a different word from the word soul. And they're distinct from each other, but the word soul is psuche. And that's where we get our word psyche. And those two things are fairly closely connected and enmeshed. You know, if someone's mind is gone, they are gone, essentially, even if their heart is still beating and their lungs are still breathing. And so we have to keep that battle in focus and we have to remember that one of the primary battlefields is in our thought life. What is it that we dwell on and desire? It is common for even Christians to give free range to their thoughts. You know, we get free range eggs. We don't like the idea of all those chickens stuffed in the, the little factory cages. It's sad. We especially like Kathy Locke's free range chickens because we've met them and they seem nice. 
But we get the free range because they just get to run all over the place and then whenever they're just like, egg, 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 you know, and they're just running around, they're happy. Don't give free reign to your thoughts, though. Don't give free range either. The battle for the mind is not like that. It is an extreme conflict and it requires discipline. The next verse here, verse 6. Having in readiness, this is the King James, to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is down and dirty fighting where when I disobey, I don't go, huh, all right. No, I start planning revenge against that disobedience. How do I take down that tower? How do I bring down that stronghold and turn my defeat not into, well, I'll try again tomorrow, but into victory? Gideon in Judges 8, remember he walked into that town, uh, they said, I I need your help. They said, no, we're not going to help you. He said, I really would rethink that. No, no, go off and, you know, you're going to lose, you're going to die. He said, no, I'm going to be triumphant. And when I come back here in triumph, I am going to pull down this tower in your, in your town. I'm going to pull it down. He could have left it there, but it means something to pull it down. And often in our minds, you know, we have these things that, that threaten to drag us back into our carnal thoughts, our worldly thoughts into the old Adam, the old Eve, and the way they operate. And we don't take the time, and we don't have the intensity and the sense of revenge to pull those things down. We think, well, I'll leave it there, but I won't frequent it. I'm going to leave the door open to me later on. I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm okay. We need to pull these things down. There's no room for half measures in the Christian life. And what sanctification looks like is that earlier and earlier in the process of these towers being erected, we notice what they are, we recognize them for what they are, and we tear them down brick by brick, if we must, with the power of the Spirit and the help of our God. There are a lot of kings in the northern kingdom who when we get, you get the little summary at the end of their lives, whether they were good or bad, basically. And a lot of them, it's like they didn't follow the Baals, they didn't worship idols, they didn't do all this bad stuff, but they did not tear down the high places. The high places were places of worship that had association with idolatry, paganism, the occult. They didn't go there and worship, but they didn't tear them down. And that was the one mark against them in this summary of their lives. We have to tear down the high places. Be on guard. This is a war with no ceasefires. None at all. If you think you're in a ceasefire, you're wrong. There's no ceasefires until we're glorified at death. In Galatians 5, Paul writes this, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You want to do them, but you're... In a deadlock like that. Again, I've been kind of really King james it up this past week for some reason. And I love the King James of that verse. The spirit lustish, lusteth against the flesh, and the flesh lusteth against the spirit. That, that sense of just extreme desire. I want to take you down. You want to take me down. We're not going to have that scene in, in Heat where like Pacino and De Niro sit down and they're like, yeah, we're enemies, but let's have coffee. No coffee. We're tearing down strongholds here. I think of Cain, when God said to him, listen, sin is crouching at your doorstep. 
It wants to jump on you and devour you, but you must master it. John Owen, who wrote really the book on all this stuff, apart from the Bible, I think his On the Mortification of the Flesh is the, the most important thing a Christian can read about becoming more and more holy. He says this, Never think your lust dead because it is quiet, but labor still to give it new wounds, new blows every day. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone, but a sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our tactics against it be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even where there is least suspicion." The best way to keep this carnal nature in the dust and not on the horse is to continually lift up Christ and place Him in the highest place in our hearts. But even as we do that, we must beware of new towers. As I think it was Luther who said, our hearts are idle factories. Or was it Calvin? If it was Calvin and I say Luther, I'm going to be horrified. I think it was Luther. Our hearts are, are idle factories. The best way then is to be aware and say, Lord, is there something today? Let's do another scan of the old heart. Is there a tower, a stronghold being built? Again, Owen, John Owen, he that changes pride for worldliness, sensuality for Phariseeism, vanity in himself to the contempt of others, let him not think that he has mortified the sins that seem to have left. He's simply changed his master, but he is a servant still. Be careful when you conquer one sin that there isn't another one. Like the person who quits smoking, but they start, oh, I don't know, eating McDonald's every time they have that craving. You're no better off. And I think one of the greatest of all of these towers that we need to tear down is the little voice that says, ah, but I'm only human. That little thing that just lets us off the hook because of the weakness and the frailty of our flesh. I'm only human. No, you're not! I'm only, the, the idea here is what the world holds on to when it, when it says, you know, don't worry about any right or wrong, just be happy, just do whatever gives you the biggest jolt of dopamine, don't worry about uh, the, the old sexual ethics based in these old Bedouin shepherd ramblings in the Bible, don't worry about whether you are greedy or materialist, don't worry about any of that, just make yourself happy. That's not who we are. If you're in Christ, you're not just the product of chemicals coursing through a meat computer. You have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. You are made in His image, and you're a child of a king. And Jesus is at work. He's tearing down and building up. In fact, when we talk about edifying, that means building up. Like the word edifice, a building. He's making a building. And have you ever seen, you know, for a long time, you'd drive down Michigan... And you'd see they're tearing down what I thought were beautiful old buildings to build soulless rectangles. But that's neither here nor there. I've never seen anyone try to build the new building without tearing down the old. Man, that would be a mistake. And, and we must say, God, have your way. Have your way in my heart. He's planting. He's causing to grow. He's weeding. He's pulling up things that don't belong there. And we can work with him or against him. I think of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember, the, the farmer goes, he plants his crop, it's, it's starting to grow, and his jerk neighbor, just to be a jerk, comes in and starts planting weeds amidst the wheat. 
And the story there is just wait till the end. The enemy is, is, is Satan and everything. But you know, we could, we could twist that just a little bit and apply it to ourselves. So often, we are our own enemy, planting the weeds in our souls in the midst of what God is planting. Planting what he's pulling up. Planting these things with thoughts and desires. Planting these things with laziness or gossip. Planting because seeds always seem harmless. They're little at first. And we say, well, a little of this won't hurt and a little of that won't either. The seed of wrath or adultery or idolatry doesn't look like wrath or adultery or idolatry. It just looks like a little cute little thing. But tending it and watering it, and eventually you will see it begins to grow on its own and out of control. Pulling up a seedling is a lot easier than pulling up a mature oak. So let us let God and help God uproot, knock down and build, and ask that that He give us the eyes of faith and the eyes of holiness to look into our own hearts and see where we may have put the servant on the horse and the king in the dust. Let us not be Christians who are the equivalent of a limousine full of high schoolers going to prom, where you say, oh, that looks really impressive on the outside, but you take one look in and go, oh, great. Let us be the opposite. We're called to be the opposite. A simple vessel of clay. And when you look inside, there's a treasure. That's the picture that Paul gives us of who we are. Jars of clay with treasures inside. That we may live out our lives in obscurity, and that's fine, because we live for a kingdom that is upside down, and the first will be last, and the last will be first. And the greatest is the least, and a little child will lead them. Let's live our lives with that in view, and let's remember that where we can have the most impact is to start in our own hearts, in our own minds, and make sure that we are followers of Jesus who have our own house in order. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these passages that cause us to think about the upside-down nature of who you call us to be. Lord, we pray that we would be content with whatever station you give us in life, that, Lord, we would want to do our best and work to the glory of God, that we would want to bring about great change uh, in the world and, and declare your name that many would come to faith. But, Lord, we pray that as you take our efforts and multiply them, we would be not complacent but content, and that, Lord, we would say, I will put my hand to the plow in plowing the field of my heart. I will tear down any strongholds that may dwell inside of me and and tear down any idols and break them to pieces like Gideon who first broke down the altar to Baal and then built up the altar to Yahweh. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be a place that is less and less hospitable to the idols of this world and more and more in line with who you are calling us to be. Lord, help us to see the strongholds of the enemy before they have even laid the first stone And let us uproot them with the power of the Spirit and all the fire of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.